0: From Built-It Productions and Luminary Media, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Carl Bass and Autodesk.
1: When I think of the difficult times, you want to have conviction, but not certainty. You need to have a steady hand on the tiller, but you can't go back and forth all the time. I always thought of myself as like the bus driver. And if you just try to avoid every pothole and every like thing in the road, everyone in the back of the bus is gonna get pretty
0: nauseous. How a renegade and reluctant executive took the helm at Autodesk, steered the company out of the global economic crisis, and brought it into the 21st century. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So when it comes to leadership, there are some leaders who are practically born with it, who have the talent, the charisma, the ambition, who naturally gravitate toward the role. And then there are others who are kind of bred and taught to be leaders, who learn as they go along. And then There are the reluctant leaders, the ones who never set out to lead, who never imagined themselves as the ultimate boss, and in fact, who might have even scoffed at the idea. Well, for much of his life, that was the kind of leader Carl Bass was. As a teenager, he dropped out of college because he was bored. He traveled around the country, he worked in construction, he learned to become a carpenter and a boat builder, he even had a stint as a whitewater rafting guide in Oregon. And it wasn't until years later that Carl had his first introduction to Autodesk. Back in the mid-1990s, Autodesk had quickly become a software giant, making the programs engineers and architects used to design everything from cars to buildings to shoes. And when Carl joined the company, he came in as a kind of renegade entrepreneur. His startup was actually bought by Autodesk. Now, to say it didn't go so well is kind of an understatement because in a very short period of time, he got fired. It would be a few more years before Carl would be asked to come back to take on the role of CEO. And as you'll find out, his time as CEO was marked by one crisis after another, including the global economic crisis of 2008. But we'll get to all that. To understand where Carl Bass's personality comes from, you have to go back to the 1960s, to his predominantly Jewish neighborhood in Queens. Carl's dad was a chemist, and his mom was a teacher, and they raised Carl in a pretty secular household. I did, I
1: did get bar mitzvah, but, you know, I, I remember the rabbi at my bar mitzvah telling the joke about, you know, going go, since my dad and I often spent, like, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur golfing, <laughs> he, 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 the, the rabbi got back at me so telling some joke about some guy who goes off on the high holidays and plays golf. And God's curses, he he allows him to get a hole in one, but he can't tell anybody. <laughs> and so, yes. Yeah, so so we, we I grew up pretty secular. Yeah. But, um, you know, like the neighborhood I grew up in Queens, I remember like my elementary school was, I think there was of uh, a couple thousand kids. There was only one non-Jewish kid in it. Wow. Yeah and the only african american kid in the school was a, was a guy named uh Kenny Goldstein wow you know so we i mean it, it was almost like a jewish ghetto in, in in queens and pretty much everybody middle class yeah totally middle class you know school teachers taxi drivers small business small business owners and were you a a pretty good student as a kid yeah
0: most mo- most of the way uh, till t- you know kind of the middle of high school when you say till the middle of high school what do you because when I think good student, I think good grades and school comes easy.
1: Is yeah. that – was that the yeah. case?
0: Math, science, was Ma- that your s- strength? M- math and
1: science. And then, you know, it was, it was the 70s and I started screwing around and – When got, you say screwing around, what would you do? Um, all kinds of things I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> every, every, everything that happens when you're, you know, 15 years old and it's – you know, at the time it's 1972 or 1973 – I I should mention, you were very
0: tall, you're like 6'2", 6'3", 6'4"? Yeah, 6'4". 6'4". you Did you play basketball? Yeah, I played a lot of basketball.
1: Um, And I grew up in New York City playing basketball. Um,
0: Were you good enough to play on the high school team? Yeah, I played high school, junior high school. Um, I didn't play in college. You were not at that level? No. No. So, you were a good student, math, science, that came pretty easy to you. Yeah. So, you go to Cornell for college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what did you decide to study there? I ended up studying math.
1: Um, hmm. And actually, I had gone to Cornell for a summer program, like, uh, after my junior year in high school. Um I think my parents and the school decided that since I was starting to screw around, that, like, I needed some, like, re-education camp. And Cornell had this summer program, and I went there met all these interesting people, and that's what led to me going there. And one of the things I found out is, you know, going from being, uh, you know, one of the good students, you show up at one of these places, and there's thousands of really smart, talented people, you know. Um, I remember going to my first English class, and uh, I come out and I said, like, to my friend who's that obnoxious guy in the front, front row answering all the questions and she said like that's so and so you know he's already written a book on Dostoevsky and I'm like <laughs> okay <laughs> and so I, th- I I think graduating with a math degree was you know partially just an accommodation of like I realized that's the thing that came most easy I liked it it came really easily to me and that in some of the things that I thought, you know, you'd get this broad education, you know, there were there were people there who are, you know, far more educated and knowledgeable than I was.
0: Let me ask you about math for a sec, because yeah. math is one of these very complicated subjects in the sense that most kids either persevere and they hate it yeah. or they think it's really boring or they think it's too hard and they drop out. It's a very small number of kids. Who make it through to the point where then they realize or they're exposed to the beauty of math, right. the, the patterns of the cosmos? How, how did you? How were you able to? I mean, did you did you see that early on in math, or did you just get through it?
1: You know, um, there's, there's 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 this great, there's this great book written about it by this math teacher, and it's a, and, and it's it's really an indictment of how they teach math. You know, in Traditional kind of schools. Yeah. And it basically says, imagine if you were going to teach someone how to play music and you know, for the first ten or twelve years you only got to do scales. Mm. And, you know, eventually, you know, after twelve years they say you can now play a song. Yeah. You know, or you can play a riff, you know, and then someday you can do something else. That that's somewhat the problem with math. I mean, math can be much more interesting. It's something to think about, it's like a puzzle. Hmm. And you know certain things. And so I always liked the challenge of the puzzle and how to solve it. Later on in my career, I didn't really use math in the absolute sense of, you know, I wasn't going around doing differential equations or, you know, doing topology. Um, But that skill of learning how to solve problems and realizing um, how to approach a problem, kind of what were the givens what what were the opportunities when you got stuck how to break those kind of log jams i mean that you encounter you know certainly in your life and certainly in business all the time
0: so you get to cornell in the yeah. late 70s as a math student and um i guess like within a year or two you you dropped out
1: it's true um yeah, what, what, really really yeah. quickly yeah what 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 happened what's the story you know i was pretty young when i got there um and I didn't really know why I wanted to be there, and um, I just decided. Like I realized, like this, there was this wide open world of stuff I could go do.
0: When and you say you were young, were you you weren't eighteen? No, I was. I
1: was probably just turned seventeen. So you were really young. Yeah. Did you skip a grade? Yeah, I didn't go to third grade. What would your parents think when you said I'm dropping out? Oh, I think they were not very happy. I mean, they must have been alarmed. Um, you know. By then they realized, I mean, I've always been one. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it wasn't like they were going to convince me otherwise. And so I think they, you know, they had accepted that's who I was. You know, they grinned and bared it. So what would you do? All kinds of fun things. I went and worked uh, construction. I worked in this theater in North Carolina, renovating it. Then I were, and then I went to South Dakota, where we kind of ran out of money, and our truck broke down. And then we got a job, my friend and I, working on uh, the Indian Reservation of the Oglala Sioux, hmm. uh, Wounded Knee, and I built houses there for kind of six months. And then I went to Seattle, and I learned
0: how to do carpentry and do boat building and. What you sp- just learned it from. Working in, in carpentry yeah, shops? I
1: actually, yeah, I actually went, you know, I knocked on some guy's shop and I, who was actually building uh, all kinds of interesting things. So I went in there and I said, can I, you know, kind of hang out here and learn how to do that? And so I learned how to build cabinets and furniture and sculpture and it was right down by the water in Seattle. Hmm. And then, you know, slowly I got interested in metal stuff and there were, I started making tools and knives and
0: stuff like that. Where did that come from? Were you always a tinkerer as a kid? No it was
1: not my thing and then um some one of my one of my buddies gave me this book on how furniture was made. When
0: you were in college? Or- when I was
1: in college. Mm-hmm. I started reading. And I was like, this is really interesting. You know, and then I started, you know, crawling around on the floor, looking under chairs and tables and seeing how they were built. And um, But it was just one of these things that caught my imagination was how to build things.
0: Were you interested in the design aspect of it or was it more about solving the puzzle? I think at first it was more the
1: mechanical, like, how does this thing happen? How do you do it? Um, How does it stay together? And then I realized that that the really more interesting question is, what should this thing be for? What makes for a great design? What makes somebody love the object that they have? What makes it good for the task? And so I became way more interested in design over the years. And now, you know, it's kind of a balance between the two. Hmm.
0: So would you describe your design aesthetic as... Rodan? Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would be a little presumptuous, guy.
0: <laughs> so you spent like what five how many 5, five years? years? 5 years dropped out. Yeah. doing working on boats, living yeah. in Seattle, yeah. South Dakota, North Carolina, anywhere <laughs> else?
1: Um I spent my summers working on the rivers in Oregon. Mm-hmm. So That period that I lived in Seattle, I was a a whitewater raft guide during the summers. And so I worked on the Rogue River, and I went down a bunch of other rivers during that period. And was your plan to always go back to college? No, it really wasn't. Um, What happened to me is I I was building boats. I then went back to the East Coast um to build a boat at a kind of a it was like an outward bound school mm-hmm. where during the winter a small number of people built these big sailboats and then during the summer we took kids on a you know one week uh outings out to the islands in Maine and um when that came to an end and somebody kind of pointed out to me that after five years, if you don't go back to school at Cornell, you have to reapply. Hmm. And, like, I got that kind of anxiety, like, oh, my God, I, I can't believe I would have to apply to college again. Hmm. And um, I was just at that, at, that, at that turning point where I was like, okay, I now, you know, would know what I wanted. I have a reason for learning. I was five years older at the time. And so I went back, so I went back to school. And um, and for me it was incredibly fortunate because I went back, and when I had left, the math department at Cornell had this idea that computers really weren't worthy of mathematics, hmm. that these you know these, these were mechanical things that real mathematician shouldn't be bothered with. Any problem you couldn't do on a, with a yellow pad of paper and a pencil was not worthy of a mathematician. Hmm. I come back five years later, and to get a math degree, you have to do all this computer stuff. Wow. And so I started doing all this, you know, really just meeting the requirements for computing and doing some other math classes. And then during that period, I, I played basketball every day at lunch there. And there was a, a man there, he was a professor, His name's Don Greenberg, and he was one of the pioneers in computer graphics. Hmm. And uh, one day we were getting changed after, you know, playing ball. And uh, it was the summertime, and I was working. I had a job. I was essentially picking rocks out of a cornfield as part of some agricultural experiment. Mm-hmm. And and Don said to me, I hear you're a mathematician, and we have this hard algorithm, and there's nobody in the lab who quite has the math skills. And it, it, the part that stuck with me it was like $10 an hour in air-conditioned. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this sounds pretty good. And so I... I went and I took a, I took a job there for the summer, and I eventually met this guy. Who he and I, as soon as I graduated, we started a company doing computer graphics. This together. was
0: Ithaca Software.
1: Yeah, it eventually became at the t- when we started. It was Flying Moose Systems and Graphics. So right, so really right after college with a yeah. BA, you did not yeah. go for
0: a graduate degree. No, I did not. You have a BA in math. You start this software company yeah. that in Ithaca yeah. that that did what? What was the software it made?
1: We really did like a consulting business. Hmm. So like one of the first projects I worked on was this idea of um, hip joint replacement. Yeah. So putting in prosthetics. At the time it was a pretty crude, you know, kind of, it looked like a butcher shop. Hmm. And they'd open you up and they'd kind of fit you on the table. And so one of the first things we did is we took a bunch of CAT scans and did a digital reconstruction of the hip. It was so the doctor could figure out ahead of time and have already milled the prosthetic to
0: the right size and so it more or less fit when it was there. So you were, I mean, you were doing the tech, you were doing the coding or whatever it was. Yeah, I was like typing on a keyboard. And what did Ithaca Software become?
1: And we made a product that was a, it was a software product for computer
0: graphics that we sold to other software companies. And so what, I mean, I'm trying to imagine this is the late 80s. What did, what What could you do with computer graphics at that time? Um,
1: surprisingly, you know, surprisingly a lot. Huh. It pales in comparison to what you can do with a $49 gaming card on a PC <laughs> yeah, today. Right. But the essence of it is all the same. Um, by the 80s. Everything in automotive, in aerospace, most manufacturing, even most architecture, was starting to be done on computers. Uh, certainly, there was a huge amount of scientific, medical research that was being done with
0: computers, and computer graphics became, you know, the avenue by which you looked at it. Wow! And and was just a small group of people who were running this company. You didn't get, get a bunch of investors and try to scale. No, we it, no?
1: didn't. No, we didn't at all. It was re- it was really my friend and my friend and I started it. A bunch of others joined us. Um, and we ran it from about oh, yeah, I would say from about 1983, and um, in about 1990 we got some investment. Hmm. Um, we got an investment from a company called Autodesk, and um, for about. Two years, they stayed as a minority investor in the company. Mm -hmm. And then about 1992, 1993, I believe, is Autodesk actually acquired Ithaca
0: Software. So this is obviously a huge turning point. 1993, this little software company you have created that grows into this thing that is interesting enough for a company like Autodesk. Yeah. Um, and, And for people who don't know what Autodesk does, just how do you describe it?
1: Autodesk uh, makes engin- you know engineering and architectural software. So it's software that people use to either design things like buildings and roads and bridges, or cars and airplanes. And it also has software that's used in the making of most of the world's uh, movies and games.
0: Hmm. So like big blockbuster Hollywood movies yeah. and, and some of the most notable buildings in the world may yeah. have or probably did use yeah, almost certainly. I mean I remember
1: one day being with the guy who ran uh sales for us in China and we were standing up in like the Jin Mao Tower looking out and he said almost every one of these buildings w- was designed using Autodesk software.
0: Wow. At yeah. that point um what did you what did you know about Autodesk? Um I had a
1: very uh kind of nasty view in the sense of we were doing this really sophisticated stuff like trying to Help scientists predict earthquakes, or hmm. find oil, or huh. you know implant prosthetics. And it was working on these high-end workstations. Autodesk, as many of the companies of the time, Adobe would have been one, Microsoft, you know, had really um, they they had a vision of what the PC could become. These things that have existed on really uh, high-end machines are now going to become mainstream. Um, I remember I, I went to a trade show, and I walked over and I saw for the first time Autodesk's main product, which was called AutoCAD. And I was laughing because we were doing, you know, what I thought was very sophisticated interactive 3D graphics. I watched AutoCAD, and I, I looked at my friend. And I said, I could actually draw faster than the computer <laughs> is. <laughs> You know, um, as it turned out to be a hugely successful product, and you yeah. know my my initial snobbiness was you know not merited at all.
0: So, so you are acquired by Autodesk, yeah. And at this point, you become an Autodesk employee, employee
1: yeah, and a bad one at that. Okay, but before we get there,
0: <laughs> what what was that like? I mean, going from a small shop like Ithaca Software to Autodesk, which presumably was bigger at the time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the company is way bigger than we are. Yeah. I mean, we're a company doing fire million, five, $10 million in revenue, and this is a company doing hundreds of millions of dollars wow. in revenue. It's well-known. We're not. It has 1,000 employees or something, you know, so uh, maybe 2,000.
0: Uh, so it's a completely different scale company. Well, how did you fit into that culture going from a small shop to this big organization? Um, It
1: being a bigger, more mature company kind of ruffled all my feathers the wrong way. You know, I just, I had the mentality of running a small company. Number one is in a small company, you get to hire each of the people. So we had like this amazing team of really smart people that we had carefully cultivated. And you can do that when you have this many people. And instead you get there and, you know, there's, much more process. There's much more bureaucracy. You know, in my mind, there's a lot more stupidity. Mm. Um, the best metaphor I have for it—it's it, like a small ball peen hammer and mm. a big sledgehammer. Mm. And I just came to terms with, you know, kind of this thing that in your startup. You can do whatever you want. You can be, you know, you can do something different tomorrow. You have 17 jobs in a single day. You're as nimble, as agile as you possibly could be. But like each time you swing your little ball peen hammer, you make a tiny little dent. Yeah. Big companies and, you know, to, today's tech is even more so. They are behemoths. They're hard to turn. They're not agile at all. But they have a huge impact on markets. They have a huge impact on the world, and so you make this trade-off of how do you ma- how do you make the battleship move
0: in order to have a big effect? Yeah. So you went from a skiff to an aircraft <laughs> carrier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, clearly, you 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 didn't immediately instantly gel with the culture because I think. Within two years you were kind of out. You were pushed out. Yeah. I got fired. You got fired? <laughs> yeah. In nineteen ninety-five. Um what what happened?
1: You know, I I, I had been there and part of like many of these deals, when you company gets bought, you agree to stay, and I agreed to stay for two years. And uh I I I was pretty vocal about the things that I thought were being done poorly at the company. And they had gotten a new CEO. Um, I was, I was. Her, her name's Carol Bartz, and I didn't really ever
0: hold back my opinion about what I thought was good and what I thought was bad. Like in 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 sort of team meetings, because presumably when you were hired, you were hired on as an executive.
1: No, I was hired on, I was, you know, kind of mid-level at best. right. But I remember early on when I joined, they were having a very difficult software release. And I remember being at this meeting, and it was probably the springtime just after we joined. And they were trying to figure out how to get it shipped. And, you know, Carol pounded the table and said, you know, we're going to ship this thing by Thanksgiving. And I started laughing and she said, she was like what are you laughing about you know mr smark i said this thing's not shipping in
0: you know thanksgiving so you were disruptive i mean from the perspective of a ceo you were a pain in the ass
1: i was a total pain in the ass
0: yeah but
1: but a well meaning pain in the ass right, you know right, like
0: right. there's a difference right not not just to be difficult but you actually really believed that you were trying to improve the, the company yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah but nonetheless a pain and 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 so, uh, yeah, so so
1: one day I said one thing too many and then Carol looks at me and says you're never gonna be happy here are you and I said no and she said you're fired I said okay good I quit and so um yeah so that's what happened five months later you were rehired yeah yeah and actually the, the real story there is I had a bunch of stuff going on my son Jake was born weighing two pounds and wow. he was born in 30 weeks and wow. so he you know so he was premature and at the same time I, my dad was in a hospital in New York dying of cancer so I, I was I was not that interested in wow. you know I'm an emotional wreck and somebody calls me and uh, says um, we really we're starting the next piece of software and we'd really like you to come back and I said I don't think it's really up to me to come back and he says I'll talk to Carol and if you're willing to do it and um I don't know if you know much about uh, um, premature babies, but um, like ne- the neonatal intensive care unit, mm-hmm. so the NICU costs about twenty-five dollars to $35,000 a day. And I started contemplating life with a... You know, a severely premature baby, you know, my million dollar baby that was now being paid for by health insurance. And I started thinking, health insurance seems like a much more reasonable thing. And this may be a time to grow up and take a job. And so I, I
0: actually said yes. So you go back to Autodesk. Yeah. Um, and presumably it goes, goes pretty well. Um, yeah. You're there for four more years. And then in 99, you leave to start a new company.
1: Yeah. I do. I, we spin out a company. We have some technology at Autodesk. I think it's going to be useful in the world, and we, we, we spin it out. 99 is the dot-com boom. Hmm. There's lots of money available what for What was the company
0: doing? This is Buzzsaw. Yeah,
1: it was called Buzzsaw, and it was for doing um, managing construction projects online.
0: So, so Autodesk did not have software like that? No. Because Autodesk was design software. It was, this was really about, the design and engineering of the buildings. This was like project management. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so, we decided that this was the next logical step, and it wasn't close enough for Autodesk to do, and it'd be better done separately, and there was a lot of money, and so we went out and we raised venture capital. We took some employees from Autodesk. We hired several hundred other people, um, and we ran the company for two years. Two, you know, The dot-com bust comes. Um, we kind of run out of money, and Autodesk decides to buy it back. So, it wasn't like this was a huge financial success no it was not a financial success at all but we we were onto something yeah and we we were two things i mean we ran into the challenge of there was no money available in 2002 for financing anything hmm. and then the the second part of it was um we were definitely too early
0: for the market so do you remember feeling stressed out during that time when when you were watching the finances of the company yeah
1: You're always trying to balance the needs of your customers, your employees, and your investors. And that's a nonstop thing in certainly any public company. And the interests of those three constituencies are pretty aligned. Hmm. You get to a time like that and you realize this is really a zero-sum game and you can't make everybody happy. Yeah. And that's probably the most difficult thing. So investors are first in line to get their money back. Customers worry that the software is going away. And employees are obviously, you know, many of them losing their jobs. So really not, really not fun
0: at all. So you come back to Autodesk uh, 2001. Yeah. Uh, once again, an employee. Yeah. Uh, were, were you at that point, were you hired as an executive?
1: Yeah, I was an executive. And, you know, if truth be told... You know, I think a large part of the reason was that Carol wanted me to be her successor.
0: The person who fired you in 1995 wanted you to be her successor, her handpicked successor. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, she wanted me to be her successor.
0: Coming up in just a moment how Carl stepped into his first crisis even before he took on the role of CEO. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built-It Productions and Luminary Media. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill, and Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2003, and Carl Bass is back at Autodesk for the third time. But this time, it's a little different. This time, he's being personally groomed to lead the company by outgoing CEO Carol Bartz. And from the outside, it seems like a surprising decision, but it's one that Carl finally feels like he might be ready for.
1: I was a very reluctant executive most of my career. It was not the thing I wanted to do when I was at Autodesk the first time. What quickly became obvious to me is that I could do the job and that I wanted to go to steering the decisions as opposed to just being subjected to them. Yeah. And, you know, so along the way, I worked through a couple of very difficult projects when I was on a desk before. When I went out to Buzzsaw, I started getting experience in, you know, raising much more serious amounts of money than we had ever done at Ithaca Software. So I interacted with investors and investment bankers and um, much more direct contact with uh customers and, you know, around kind of the full spectrum of what a company is. So by the time I came back, I was much more experienced. Hmm. And I, I think I had a much clearer idea what the company could accomplish.
0: Did you face any challenge when you arrived? Was there any anything that... Yeah. Between about
1: 2003, 2004, where it becomes obvious on the successor. Carol's, you know, publicly endorsing me to do it. Um, the board is a little dubious that you know, this kind of slightly renegade-ish character yeah. is capable of doing it, you know, many of them thought I would fall on my face. But I walk into the job, and the first couple months, we discover that, like many companies in Silicon Valley, um, uh, the company had been backdating
0: stock options. Wait. you find this out? <laughs> that that they had been falsifying the date on when the options were given Yeah, so people could get them at a lower price. Right. And who who was getting these options?
1: Every employee in the company. It was executives, but every every, every employee in the company. And
0: and how did that happen?
1: Well, the way it happened, I mean, my belief, I figured out. Well, Let me first tell you how I figured it out because it was more interesting. So I'm in the job maybe two months and two employees come to me. And say, we've been reading in the newspaper and magazines all these articles about there are a bunch of companies, you know, Brocade and Apple and, you know, there's a long list of companies. And these two people who work in the HR come to me and say, I think we've been doing the exact same thing. (laughs) I thought about it as a mathematician. I said, let me first find out if this is true. And so I went home and I went on Yahoo Finance. I downloaded the stock price, the closing stock price for Autodesk for the last 10 years or something and um I would look at each month in which we handed out options and see if you had a price that was near the high or the low and you know so I ranked each day and if it was the 30th um you know lowest price that wasn't bad but if it was the f- lowest price that would be an indication I remember sitting at a table, my wife's at the next desk with her computer, and I'm going through this thing, and I'm going, oh, 15, 17, and then it goes, one, Mm. two, one, two. Mm. And for four and a half years, we never handed out options except when they were at nearly the lowest price. And with each one, you know, I'm just cursing. (laughs) And Daryl's in there going, what's wrong?
0: And I said, you will not believe this. Can Help me understand why, I mean, so on one hand... It sounds like, you know, there, there, there may have been somebody in the company or people in the company who thought, well, let's, let's give this benefit to our employees, give them the lowest price so that, you know, in the future they can make lots of money. So, but on the other hand, it's illegal. You're not allowed to do that.
1: So the, the truth is actually a little bit more subtle than that. Hmm. You are allowed to do it, but the amount that the employee benefits, you need to, you need to account for. Right. And pay taxes on that benefit. So there's nothing illegal about doing it. Now, when when I finally figured out what went on and this is, you know, a year later after a huge investigation and, you know, a bunch of crap happening. um, And I think it's one of the dangers when you live in any kind of limited ecosystem, you know, just like a disease spreads when you have a monocrop. This is the same thing. If everybody uses the same advisors. Which is, you know, relatively true in the valley. This this thing like
0: spreads like a wildfire, and so the same advice is given to each of these companies. Okay, so at this point, it's uh, two thousand six. You've just been named CEO and president. Yeah, but that but that's kind of overshadowed by this crisis Autodesk is facing with with backdating stock options. Yeah, and and incidentally, what did this all cost you guys? Was there like a huge tax bill?
1: Um, it was not the taxes that really was the most punishing. I mean, there was millions of dollars, but not an absurd amount Hmm. of money. The most difficult thing as a new CEO, first-time public company CEO, is that we were not allowed to report earnings for, I can't remember if it was four or five quarters.
0: Because of that?
1: Yeah, because we didn't know what the cost was. We couldn't account for it. So, I was allowed to talk about how much revenue we had, but since I couldn't... Um, enumerate the costs, you can't have a bottom line. And the SEC took the very strict line. And so there's nothing like, you know, I mean, showing up at your first day, you know,
0: at the dance and you can't perform. So if you could not report your earnings, what did that do to your share price? It, I mean, it, it got a big drop and
1: then just kind of got sat on. I mean, th- nobody was going to give us the benefit of the doubt right. till the thing was resolved. And unfortunately, and this was one of the difficult things, is our board reacted really badly. To what? To that decision? To the news mm-hmm. and how to investigate it and what they thought the like right response was. Do they think your response was not the right response? Well, I mean, at the end, one of the advisors said, your circumstances were actually not nearly as bad as many of the other companies, but your board was a 100 times worse. <laughs> and they basically wanted to fire the two HR people who reported it. Hmm. That was the board's answer. It was kind of this moment of truth where I just said, I'm not doing that. And there's this interesting dynamic where the board can fire the CEO, yeah, but they can't actually fire employees. right? And so I just... You know, uh, went at it with the board for months. And I said, I am not firing the people who, by all accounts, um, when they suspected something was wrong, they came forward. And this is one of the difficulties of public boards. But, I mean, they, they, they had this whole cover their ass mentality about it. Mm. You know, and they kind of rationalized, like, the SEC is good to demand that we fire employees. And I'm like, I don't care what they demand. This is not the right thing to do. And so we, we had this standoff. And I think it, it taught me a number of lessons about difficult times. One of the things is you got to know what's right and what's wrong. Hmm. Yeah, And I mean that in a, you know, an ethical, moral sense of what is the right thing to do in this situation. Um, the other one I learned is that one of the most important characteristics um, that I, to this day, look for in boards that either I join or, you know, when I invited people to join our board... Was it was people that I wanted to be in the foxhole with, you know,
0: when the crap hit the fan? But let me let me ask you about the board for, for a moment because this is a big. This kind of casts a shadow over your entire tenure as CEO. Um, you are ultimately answerable to the board. Absolutely. And you can't pick them. You can't. You're, you can maybe suggest some people or maybe engineer some people, but you cannot pick who's on the board. And, more or less. Right. I mean, it, it, it's a much more complicated thing because people who are asked
1: to join boards don't join boards unless they have a relationship with the CEO. Right. So it's a little bit more subtle. And, for example, in this case, me
0: and several of the other board members essentially fired about half of our board after that. And and your position was, look, right. we had to handle this in a transparent way.
1: And, and I thought that was most important was, This idea of retaliating against employees who did nothing wrong—I just wasn't going to be part of it. it, You know, and if it meant they were going to fire me, I said to him, you know, multiple times, "You can fire me, and then you can hire someone who will fire them." You know,
0: it's the Saturday Night Massacre. Yeah, I mean, Um, I'm I'm wondering. I mean, did you, you know, some leaders um, they they work to please the board first and foremost when you thought at the end of the day, when you went to bed, whose yeah. opinion did you care about the most? The board, the employees, the shareholders?
1: I I always wanted to be, Autodesk to be a, a, a great company, a good company, and an important company. And in my mind, a great company meant that You had a solid business, and a great business is good for all those constituencies. The second one that I thought was good was that, you know, you you were a good member of the community in which you did business. You treated your employees well. You did things for the community. um, You helped society at large. And important was you were doing meaningful. You were producing meaningful products. And so, to to more directly answer the question, um, I always thought that it was a balance between those constituencies, but I said, if we built a great business, um, that really answered it all. Mm -hmm. You know, because if you have a healthy business, you can continue to pay employees and hire new people, your customers are getting better products, and obviously your investors are getting returns. Sometimes that may may have meant taking a little bit of skin out of the employees, sometimes it was out of the customers, sometimes it was out of the investors when everything's perfectly aligned, those aren't hard decisions. Yeah. It's only when there's a conflict between the, the thing or we really have a zero-sum game, then you go, one comes at the expense of the other. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, for me, it was always keeping my eye on the, you know, we're, we're, we're building a good business, but um, I, w- I would almost never make a decision that did one thing to the exclusion
0: of all the others. Mm. So... Aside from being sort of managing the board and managing those relationships, yeah. you still had to run the company and there's still, you still had to kind of you know, bring about innovations, it's a very competitive space, I have to assume, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, so, so how was the business doing? I mean, certainly from sort of 2006 to 2012, 13, 14, was it, you know, because you had a financial crisis in the middle of this Jr. Yeah. Period. So I
1: would say from about 2004 to 2008- Business was doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, to the fin- global financial crisis hits, um, we actually see this it, pretty early. The software that we made was for people who were doing construction and, and manufacturing you saw a slowdown. Yeah, wow. And we, we saw it about nine months before um, um, Lehman Brothers collapses.
0: Did, were you talking about it internally? Like yeah, something's going all on all the time.
1: We, 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 and what it was not the places where we stood in front of big customers. It was the business that came from small architectural businesses and, you know, small machine shops that would buy one or two. It was a statistical kind of business where you would expect to sell tens of thousands of units a month. Wow. And all of a sudden you saw, you know, diminished numbers. And yet at the time, I mean, there are many people who think the economy is going gangbusters. Right. Uh, So it's this crazy, you know, it's a crazy period and we're scratching our head. Are we doing something wrong? And then, you know, the financial crisis hits. And when you know you're going into a severe recession, there is nobody who can predict the shape of it. Yeah. You know, how 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 severe is the down? How long is it going to be? I mean, I remember all these people, like, people love using, you know, is it going to be U-shaped or V-shaped or W-shaped? It was like, I, you know, in running a company, I, I felt no particular uh, skill at forecasting that. And yet, you have to run the company. And we decided since we could not forecast it, we were going to reduce our expenses as much as possible. To save cash. To save cash. And that meant layoffs. It meant huge layoffs. Um, all I mean, pulling out all the stops. We actually took out about $400 million in expenses over about three or four months. Wow. Yeah. It was hard. And we had to talk to every one of our contractors, um, every one of our suppliers. We had to stop doing all kinds of things that the company had previously done. The company hadn't experienced a kind of meltdown in the you know global economic conditions like that ever before
0: so presumably um, you went through a few years of not
1: being profitable no it was not um, i mean they were definitely not good financial
0: results was the board holding you accountable for this or did they sort of say well the world is kind of the economic s- situation is this way and we expect this to be yeah i
1: didn't i i didn't feel particular pressure Uh, Now, somewhat, we were warned by those nine months. And we didn't wake up and go, what's this Lehman Brothers thing? Mm. We're like, "Okay, we really see what's going on. We had felt it. And so we reacted pretty quickly. And so the pressure, if anything, was to um, be decisive, uh, take some action. Um, When I I think of these things, you know, of the difficult times, one of the things that seems important to me is— you want to have conviction, hmm. but not certainty.
0: Yeah,
1: maybe that's the best. Way, you know. Yeah. So you want this conviction. You need to have a steady hand on the tiller, but you can't know exactly what's going to happen. And it's one of the things you got to realize is you can't go back and forth all the time. You know. And the 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 thing that was always in my head, I've, I always thought of myself as like the bus driver. Hmm. And if you just try to avoid every pothole and every like thing in the road, everyone in the back of the bus is going to get pretty nauseous. And so, as a leader, you have to be responsive. But but you you can't just wake up every day like you can in a small company because people really do get you know uh, you know sick following you.
0: Yeah. So how how long before you pulled out of that? that situation was it was it a few years was it you know 2010 2011? yeah it was, it was
1: by 2010 and it, you know what I actually had this idea when the markets tanked um, Autodesk stock hit eleven dollars wow I actually ran around Silicon Valley trying to find enough people to raise money to buy the company at this point the company's doing two billion dollars in revenue and had a billion dollars of cash in the bank and you could have bought it for eleven. for two billion dollars. Wow, And, you know, and so this, it makes me very cynical about all the people in the world of finance, you know, all these people who pound their chest all the time and tell you how, you know, capital gets rewarded for taking risks. I just remember I, I thought this was one of the greatest business opportunities. You, you, you have a company like that that you could buy, you know, and at today's stock price, it's worth tens of billions of dollars. Wow. Um, but there was no – I mean, you got to remember, global financial crisis was severe. People were going out and, you know, buying bullion. You know, they were putting gold yeah. in safes in their garages, and, you know, and, and buying automatic weapons to protect themselves. It was so crazy.
0: Um, and, and as the CEO, you felt like it was your responsibility to at least go and find a potential buyer yeah. if the company was going to go under.
1: Yeah, I was like, I thought it was a reasonable thing to explore because I hmm. thought this thing, I mean, the way I looked at it, either the world's going to come to an end as we know it because the economic system's going to collapse or this business is going to be fine. Hmm. As a matter of fact, when I one day in, in frustration, I made probably one of my greatest financial investments ever. And so I just took as much money of my own that I could get my hands on. I bought this huge wad of stock of Autodesk at $11. Wow, because I had total conviction about it, because um, I didn't believe the world was coming to an end. I thought it was you know it was going to be severe, and there was a lot of you know rejiggering that would happen in the financial system, but hmm. you know good businesses were going to come out of this being good businesses, and that's what it did. yeah, and um you know, and then we came out of it way stronger than we were going into it. I mean it wasn't obvious on the on the going in you know into the abyss that that's how it would turn out but you know by by 2010 it was pretty clear that
0: um you know we were on the road to recovery with uh, the sort of the core product that you you had there which essentially yeah. is a design software yeah. i have to imagine that you've got to constantly improve that constantly make that better because there are sharks circling around you all the time right yeah. and there's tons of people looking to get into that you know take a piece of that market share
1: yeah i mean I think any good technology product company does really kind of two things. One is you listen to the customers and kind of figure out what would make their jobs easier, what would make them more productive, what would make them love your products more. And then the second is you have an eye towards what's possible because of the new technology.
0: Hmm. But to do that, sometimes you have to actually take a hit, right? Sometimes to to introduce a new product or a new innovation – you have to kind of take a step back, at least when it comes to revenue.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, we went we went through one period uh, that's just kind of the company's coming out of it now. We made a change in how
0: we were going to sell our product to customers. When, when did when did you decide to do that?
1: We probably decided
0: five years ago, and to uh, so 2014, just, you decide. Yeah. And what was the change you? So wanted the change to
1: make? was people were buying software. They'd buy it, and then they'd occasionally buy an upgrade like we would with like Microsoft Office. Sure. And instead, we went, like many software companies, and we were one of the first to say, we're going to do this on a subscription basis. Like
0: Adobe products.
1: Yeah. So uh, you're going to pay us X amount a year for your product. Right. And we spent a year thinking about it. We knew the financial impact, at least superficially, would be staggering. Because instead of someone maybe paying us five thousand dollars for a product, they were now only going to pay a thousand dollars a year or fifteen hundred dollars a year, right? And but over time, and knowing how our customers use the software and the loyalty to the products, it was going to pay off
0: easily. But you could also, but there was also a risk that customers would say, "Hang on, one second. What's a subscription thing? I want right. to. I want to own this thing." Yeah. And if you look at the
1: first days of when we, when Autodesk and Adobe did it, there were user groups that were screaming and yelling. And, I mean, there was there was all kinds of noise in the system.
0: What did it do to the bottom line? Did it, I mean, it must have had an impact. It destroyed the bottom line. In- instantly? Instantly. Wow.
1: Yeah. Um, now, if you were an astute observer... You would you would have realized it, but we spent nearly two years trying to explain to the public markets
0: what we were doing because your stock was was getting going, hammered. hammered, yeah, getting the crap beat out of us. So, the, getting the crap beat out of you from shareholders and from uh, yeah, you know- it, 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 shareholders,
1: customers. We learned what the benefits were to the customers, and we eventually came to this point of view that said there's a lot of benefits in it for customers. They will pay us, for example, more over the long term. Mm. But on the other hand, um, as their workforce changed— they could adjust how many licenses they had. Right. They also didn't need as big an upfront cost. So if you had a big project and you brought on three people, um, that would be a year. That was a lot less cost. So th- there were benefits for the customers. Right. But, the, the, you know, the superficial impact on the bottom line was, like, devastating. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
0: So when you presented this idea to the board and said, this is what we want to do, we want to shift from, you know, selling the software to a subscription-based plan, but I need to tell you all, we're going to have this rough patch. It's yeah. going to be really rough. Did, did you know that from the beginning? From the very beginning. And the board said, great, we're fine with that. We're, we're ready to, to go through these, you know, rough seas.
1: They said it in the way that boards say it. Um, uh, and yes, we actually drew the curve of what like revenue and units and um, you know our operating margin would look like over. Did this you period predict of time.
0: the stock price as well? No, but
1: you could. You, I mean, it, it mirrored it pretty closely. Right. Um, you know, a mature you know a mature business like that is pretty tied to the cash flows. Sure. And what was interesting is, um, in the first years, we knew. That you got this really negative impact, but once you got through the f- first two years, it starts turning positive, and then it turns massively like positive. A stick. Yeah, and it just goes crazy. But that was a change in the way that the public markets viewed these software
0: companies. But you knew you were going to go through at least two years of not chaos, but you know stress and and, and yeah. right.
1: This is the conviction, but not certainty. It made a much closer relationship with the customer, having a subscription as opposed to someone picking something up at the newsstand when they feel like it. Um, So, the preponderance of evidence was this was the right thing to do. You, you, You have some conviction about it. You're not exactly sure how it plays out, but you also... Back to the bus driver. You don't want to make everyone sick. You, you need more conviction to
0: say this is the right thing to do. So in that two-year period, yeah. do you remember yeah. the low point of the stock price or roughly how low it got?
1: Yeah. I would have said it's probably around $40.
0: $40 a share. Yeah. And, and today it's probably something like- 140 Wow. Okay. So, so $40 a share, that meant that for a period of time, lots of shareholders- they were watching their investment just tank. Yep. And that caused stress, but also the board, I should we should point out, is made up of significant investors. Absolutely. But you know, there's a real difference and this is one of the things about particularly
1: public boards is there's a difference when you go to work every day and yep. you own these things yep. versus you show up 4 times a year right. for a day and a half. Right. It's a, it's a different ownership being a public board member. And, you know, I I hesitate to, like, criticize it because every time I think about board governance, it's like, you know, what I guess Churchill was, you know, purported to say about democracy is the worst form of government but better than all the others that we have been tried. It's the same thing. I don't have a better answer. Uh, And that's why I kind of gave this nod. Like, yes, they said this was okay and they approved it. I'm not sure they really understood it in their gut, the way we all understood it. Yeah, we did our best. I don't think we were perfect by any means in um, trying to tell the investment community how this played out and why we had
0: this kind of, um, you know, conviction about it. Um, so, so going back to that to that period to that 2014-15 uh, period, uh, revenues are down yeah the stock is down yeah uh, the overall finances are not great and and then you've got to go through this painful transition to a subscription model and and all of a sudden or maybe not all of a sudden uh you're faced with activist investors some of some of whom are represented on the board
1: yeah we're probably a year and a half to two years into the transition mm-hmm. we end up really with um, two two activists on the board
0: and activists are people who, do this regularly? Like they go into a company, they put a lot of money into it, they want a quick return and then- They put a little money into it. Okay.
1: Right? A little by the standards of the overall company. They end up buying a, you know, a handful of percent. It's often confused that they think people buy 50% of the company.
0: Enough to get on the board though.
1: Right. They, they, they buy a
0: handful and then threaten others. And are their objectives different than, for example, your objectives? Oh, or totally. You, what were the objectives of these activist investors?
1: The the main goal is returning as much money as possible um, in a short time. Let's say you were doing a Harvard Business Review thing, and you gave three groups, here's an established company, and you want to maximize your return. And one group you said do it over one year, one group you said do it over five years, and one group you said do it over 10 years. I would fail all of them if they came back with the same plan. Because if your time horizon is different, almost certainly you will do something very differently. As you know, like if Microsoft stopped making Office better tomorrow, or Google didn't do anything different on search, they fired all the engineers working on search, you'd still have search working. Yeah. It would be a number of years before anyone took that away. So in the one-year thing, what you do is you drastically reduce expenses and you mortgage the future. If you're building a ten-year thing, you do almost the polar opposite. So, um, the only the, the only thing that it mattered for me is I had worked with the board on a succession plan, hmm. and I I had decided that I had done this job long enough, and I had other things I wanted to go do. And you life. start
0: talking about succession in like 2015, 2016, way before that, hmm. probably from um,
1: 2013 on. I'd had, you know, several conversations with the chairman of the board. I mean, one of the obligations of a CEO in a public company is to uh, be nurturing and mentoring successors, uh, possible successors within the company, certainly looking at the world at large amongst your competitors and others and figuring out who could do this job. And so we we had had very serious succession plans in place. And we were just about to announce the succession when the activist showed up. Hmm. And As, they
0: didn't like your plan, they didn't like your your vision or or what um,
1: they thought that the stock was underpriced for the opportunity, hmm. and so they wanted to take uh advantage of it and you do that by cutting expenses, yeah, so if for example, you cut expenses during this thing, you could get the forty dollars to go to sixty dollars right. And you know so the the downturn from this change in business model wouldn't have been as severe now um what they didn't really know, and <laughs> as uh I've always been kind of a fighter, and the one thing I really hate is bullies, just like I didn't like when the board tried to bully me into firing people who didn't deserve it. Mm. I didn't like being bullied by the activist investors, and so what would have otherwise been. You know, more look like the sunset year in which you're ready to hand over the reins. It was probably one of my most fun and animated years because I loved the fight. Hmm. And so I spent probably 12 to 15 months more at the company than I would have liked to. Hmm. But in some ways, it turned out to be totally fun for me.
0: Yeah, I'm, Here's what I'm curious about. I mean, you, yeah. you're, you're doing these battles with some activist investors and board members um, But it doesn't sound like you ever took this personally. I mean, you were fired by Carol, then you became her successor, her handpicked successor. Like it doesn't sound like you ever that you never kind of went home and said, "I hate that person. He's just such a jerk." I
1: I think it's really important in these these kinds of jobs to separate the who you are from the position, Hmm. like. When I first became CEO, I always joked that I became, you know, a, a lot funnier and a lot smarter. And then you start figuring out that a lot of the attention that's paid to you is not about who you are. It's about your position. Mm-hmm. And that the day I was no longer be CEO of Autodesk, you know, the, now it's Andrew. People would be laughing at his jokes and telling him how smart he was and, you know, how <laughs> handsome he was. But they're looking for jobs or this or that or right. the other thing. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things like... Um, I really liked every day I worked in San Francisco and I'd get on BART to come home. I liked getting on the train because I liked when I got elbowed, you know, as opposed to, you know, being in the office every day where, you know, everyone holds the door open for you and everyone bows down. Um, You know, my, my life and who I am is different than my job. I went to work because I wanted to accomplish something, and what I was looking for was the best people, you know, committed, smart, passionate, who wanted to do the same thing I do. You know, many of the things I like doing, most of my friends don't like doing. Yeah, um, You know, they don't want to do bath problems. They don't want to do business problems. They don't want to build sculpture. They're still my friends. Well,
0: but I'm curious. I mean, even in the, you know, in the small team that I, I have, yeah. it's really important to me that the people on my team feel valued and that if they were asked about me they would say, I love working with guy, he supports yes. me I mean
1: but, but it, I, I did have this slight separation it, it was different than being their friend um, but I did want people I want first of all, I think the most important thing you can do for any employee is make them feel like you value them. If you look at the flip side, if you ask why people leave a job, the two leading reasons in every business is my boss is a jerk and I don't feel valued. Or appreciated, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's some combination of that. And it costs businesses a lot of money. Huge amount of money. So, I mean, I always try to do my job with the highest integrity, you know, the most transparency, be as clear as I possibly could about what I was doing and why I was trying to do it. And so, I, I didn't want to be, yeah, maybe you call it liked. I mean, look, at the end, when I finally said I was stepping down and, uh, you know, and people had parties and sent me stuff, or I, fi- I finally took a look on Glassdoor and, you know, I had this, like, super high... Re- it certainly makes you feel good about what sure. you do. But, you know, I was always like, if you're a great pitcher, you didn't have to wake up on Monday morning I read what the sports writer wrote about how you did it. You know, did Mariano Rivera have to know whether he did a good job last night or not? And I felt it was always my job as a professional to be very self-critical and be self-aware, you know, and being open to feedback. But I didn't need that outside kind of validation of it.
0: What's your biggest self-criticism about your management style? Um... I'll be
1: a little coy in the sense of the thing people always said to me that I was I, I, I was worst about was giving praise. Um, that You didn't do it enough. I didn't do it enough. And uh, at one point someone made it clear we had this one room where we used to go in and prepare important things and on the wall one day I walk in and there was like Carl's grading system and it was like A, acceptable B, barely acceptable C, crap D, dog shit and you know F is F and awful you know and I was like am I really that bad guys? You had this grading system on your <laughs> So someone had just written it on I the see. whiteboard okay. as a joke and I just looked at them all and I said am I really this awful? and they said yeah kind of you're, you're, you're kind of that awful and I don't really think it's true But it's one of the things that I certainly became – I came to appreciate that um, you don't run a big company by yourself. I felt like I showed it all the time. I clearly did not to the satisfaction. And it's such an easy thing to do. Yeah. Particularly when you feel that way. So it's like it's stupid
0: and stingy on my part to have not done that. I think effective leaders have to be self-aware. To be a better, to become a better.
1: Yeah, particularly when people are treating you as, you know, though you walk on water and your ideas are better. You know, and so many leaders come in with this idea that their job is to be right. And, you know, having, you know, gone to the other side of the journey, I realize, like, that's completely the opposite of what you need to be. You know, many CEOs are treated like they're the smartest person in the company. Yeah. I would guarantee you that as smart as any of the people you and I could name, None of them are the smartest person in their company.
0: Yeah. Carl, obviously I read a lot about you before this interview. And one of the things I I read that you you have this criticism of the sort of the corporate CEO culture of courage. In other words, you feel that there's an absence of courage at, at the top level of the C-suite um, for reasons that may be justified or may seem to be justified. What do you, What do you mean by that?
1: So, I think I, I think there's some that's justified and some that's not.
0: But you don't, in general, we should start by saying you think that there's a, a lack of courage yes. at the highest levels of, of companies. Well,
1: actually, when I first moved to California, hmm. when I moved to the Bay Area, you know, a bunch of people kind of said to me, you know, like, the, the, the goal was to get FU money. And I thought that was, like, kind of weird. And then somewhere along the line, I realized, like, actually having an FU attitude was way more important than having fu money, hmm. and um, I just don't think that most of the people who rise through the ranks of most corporate structures, given that their goal is to get incrementally better, you know, are naturally renegade. They're n- they're not naturally shit disturbers. They're not the people who do that. Um, I think, as you probably know, you know, from your other podcasts, uh, many of the people who are founders you know, have incredible um, confidence in their ideas, you know, against all odds, they do things that nobody thinks possible. And when told a hundred times why it's a bad idea, they get more convinced that this is the right thing to do. And so I think in that way, you certainly see a lot more courage there. I think we're unfortunately in a really bad period where um, we have a lack of leadership in Washington, D.C. I see very few corporate leaders Speaking out about things that um, you know should mat- matter to their companies, to their employees, um, to the because communities they're afraid in which of they losing business. business.
0: They're afraid of their stock getting hit. They're afraid of a tweet.
1: Yeah, they, they're they're afraid of they're afraid of a tweet. They're they're afraid of some of their customers will fall on one side or the other side. Um, but I think if you accept the podium that's given to you with these jobs, um, then you, you just can't speak when it's convenient and when, it, when when it's easy and everybody agrees. I mean, it's kind of the nature of leadership is that you sometimes um, and maybe even frequently have to do things that, you know, are going to get some people upset.
0: Do you think that you were born a leader or do you think that you learned how to become one?
1: I was definitely not born a leader. First times I ever had to get up and, you know, stand in front of a group of 20 people, you know. I had to run to the bathroom first before I could, you know, <laughs> give a talk, hmm. you know. And by the end, you know, speaking in front of 20,000 people was no big deal. But that was a learned skill. Yeah. Um, you know, and also, as you can tell from a kid, you know, who started out like li- liking sitting in the back of the room throwing spitballs, you know, to waking up and finding out that you're the teacher one day. Um, I was a much more natural spitball thrower than I ever was the the one in the front of the room. But, you know, at some point being... Uh, you know, the the kind of person who wanted to uh, see real change happen, I realized that you could actually have a much greater effect if you could channel that from the front of the room. Than the, you, were ne- you were never going to make a, a real dent in anything from the back of the room.
0: That's Carl Bass, former CEO of Autodesk. Carl's still involved with several other companies, including ones that work on autonomous cars and autonomous construction equipment. By the way, if you ever get to the Chabot Science Center in Oakland, California, you can see one of Carl's sculptures, a walk-in wooden rocket that he made for his kids. Thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built-It Productions and Luminary Media.